Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Strategy Series, sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Dr. Angela Stent, Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University and the Director of its Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and served in the Office of Policy Planning at the United States State Department and as a national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia. She's also the author of the great 2019 book, Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the rest. Uh, this conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. This strategy series is not affiliated with the Andrew W. Marshall Foundation. Dr. Stent, thanks so very much for joining us. It's an honor having you on the program. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, indeed, uh, a pleasure. And before we get started, our daily coverage is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our uh, cyber coverage overall. General Atomics, as I mentioned, sponsors our overall strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage and our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were both sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, Dr. Stend, as I mentioned, it's a pleasure uh, to have you on at an important time. Uh, for uh, too many years, Washington and its allies uh, in Europe kept ignoring Russian provocations, continuing to do business as usual uh, with Russia, even as Russia transgressed. After 2014, there wasn't much of a punishment. Um, all of that changed after February 24, when Vladimir Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. Uh, some were stunned that Putin uh, actually did it. Uh, indeed, his allies, even in Washington, argued that he would never uh, would. Uh, others were convinced that neither Washington and apparently Putin as well were convinced that neither Washington nor Europe would really respond or do anything uh, about it. Um, he did invade. We did respond. There have been unprecedented military aid to Ukraine uh, and sanctions imposed on, on Russia. For some you know, have prophesied this is the end of Russia uh, somehow. For for others, it's just a chapter. After all, many smaller nations, as we're going to discuss in this program, whether they're North Korea or Iran, have weathered withering sanctions, and they're not a nation of 140 million people with the natural resources that Russia has. Uh, and and indeed, nations around the world want to continue trading uh, with uh, and doing business uh, with with Russia. Good policy really does depend on understanding your adversary. Uh, and few in Washington have studied Russia and Putin more closely than you have. What do policymakers need to know about Russia, Russian history, and specifically that it's the world's last remaining imperial power? How does all of this shape Russia and the decision-making of leaders like Putin and people in the Kremlin? So the historical narrative that you're going to hear from Putin and people before him and the people in the elite who have this imperial mindset is that Russia has always had a security problem. Uh, the only natural border it has is in the north. Um, and throughout history, uh, what the Russian state has done is what it would refer to as defensive expansionism. That is to try and absorb uh, the territories, the countries in its neighborhood, uh, and it would argue to prevent it from being invaded. So in one way, the Russians pre present themselves as the victims of centuries of countries trying to invade them. And this is why 
what Putin has said since the beginning of this war in Ukraine, that Russia is doing this uh, because it was threatened by the United States and NATO using Ukraine as a platform to threaten and possibly invade Russia. So this idea of, of defensive expansionism is very much um ingrained in the Russian historical narrative. But there is also, the other side of it is an imperial mindset. Vladimir Putin has likened himself to Peter the Great, uh, who went to war with Sweden and then took the three Baltic states. And in a speech a few months ago, Putin said, you know, Peter took back territories that belong to Russia. And I, Vladimir Putin, am going to take back territories that belong to Russia. And, and Putin and those around him seem to believe that Russia is the only empire in history that will not accept the fact that the empire ended uh, in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, you know, if you look at the 20th century, uh, the Austro-Hungarians, the Ottomans, the British, the French, they all had to accept in the end that their empires ended. Uh, but, for, for, but for Putin, that's unacceptable. Uh, and so it's this idea of this perpetual Russian empire and Russia's right to dominate uh, its neighbors, um, which, uh, you know, is very much ingrained uh, in the discourse that you hear now. It's been going on for some time. And unless and until the people around Putin in the Kremlin and Putin himself, obviously, are willing to jettison this imperial mindset, Russia's neighbors are in danger. Um, and uh, I think we've we've seen that time and again, and I want to get uh, into uh, sort of whether or not Russia is losing grip uh, actually on its empire, because there are fractures and fissures uh, that are happening even among those nations that have uh, either rely on or have had uh, a very intimate relation uh, relationship with uh, Moscow. Um, you know, even if it's at the, the barrel of, a, of an economic or a military gun. You've studied Putin uh, exceptionally closely. Uh, he has made a historic miscalculation, which is obvious, uh, again, in part because nobody was really pushing back on him, whether he was assassinating people in Berlin or elsewhere, uh, taking Ukrainian territory. Um, there is still, however, a hope uh, that he can be reasoned with, that he can be negotiated with, uh, that moderated sanctions uh, will shape him. We hear this kind of talk from everybody, from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, uh, to uh, you know, uh, notable and exceptionally thoughtful academics like Walter Russell uh, Mead uh, uh, today uh, in, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, making an argument that it's time to to negotiate. Um, he, however, Putin, appears to think that Russia can wait everything out. Russians are tougher. Uh, we can bear these sanctions. The West is weak and they will fracture eventually because of their own self-interest. My, my belief is he's a bit like the Terminator. He's going to keep going until he gets what he wants or he gets killed uh, and leaves uh, feet first. What does Russia, uh, what does Putin's history tell us about what he responds to and what he actually doesn't and whether any of the things that we're actually doing now are effective short of getting him out of there, which you know I want to get to in a minute. But what are the things that drive him? What does he respond to and what does he not respond to? Well, he clearly, and none of the sanctions that we imposed, first of all, in 2014, after the annexation of Crimea and when Russia began this war uh, in the Donbass region, those hit Russia economically, but they didn't change 
uh, Russia's policies. And we've seen we've got much tougher sanctions now. It's amazing, really, how the US and Europe and our Asian allies have banded together um, and imposed very tough financial and now energy sanctions. But none of these seem to have any impact on, you know, on, on his goals in this war. Um, even though we know that they're having uh, these current sanctions are having a serious impact and will have a much more serious impact next year on Russia. I think, uh, you know, that the only thing that he would respond to would be a really, you know, a very tough pushing back against what he's done in a military sense. But the issue, of course, in this war is that the United States wants to make sure that no NATO or particularly American troops actually uh, come in, you know, come to blows with Russians, uh, get, and because that would could trigger, um, you know, possibly a nuclear war. And so I think the restraint that the U.S. and its NATO allies have imposed on themselves in what they're doing in this war has really enabled Putin to keep pushing on. And I think Putin's mindset to the extent that we understand it now is that if Russia keeps bombarding the infrastructure in Ukraine, if it keeps cutting off the Ukrainians from electricity, from heat, from water, eventually the Ukrainians themselves may crack. Um, or uh, the Europeans, if the winter is tough, energy prices are high, and they're also suffering from the impact of the sanctions, that they will also put pressure on their governments to come to the negotiating table and force the Ukrainians to accept territorial losses. You mentioned uh, self-deterrence. Uh, you know, I, I think it's astonishing to me that the international response and the support for Ukraine has been was great, but the key is actually deterring uh, somebody. And as you know, the former uh, commander of the United States Air Forces uh, in uh, Europe, uh, General Cobra Harigian, Jeff Harigian, at the recent West Coast Aerospace Forum uh, in California, said, really, we have to deter a guy, right? It's less of a, of a nation, but it's, you know, a lot of our activities and actions are focused on the guy who's calling the shots, because it seems like nobody else on his team really is, uh, ultimately, uh, right? Because everybody is quite afraid of Putin, given he spends an enormous amount of bandwidth tracking everybody in his orbit uh, and then and then managing to punish or control them do, do what are the deterrence lessons to be learned here right i mean before this happened there were proposals for example that nato should deploy troops uh to ukraine at the invitation for example of a sovereign government um we we continue to um moderate the kind of weapons we want to send to the ukrainians and effectively putin you know, as Garry Kasparov has rightly said, right, is hiding behind a nuclear shield while trying to push you off the stage. Um, what are the kind of broader deterrence lessons that are being learned here or should be learned from your standpoint? Because we have a tendency of de-escalating something which our adversary knows well and takes advantage of. Well, so far, clearly, deterrence hasn't worked <laughs> um, because uh, in the period between 2014 and 2022, when there were, you know, there was a low-level conflict continuing the Donbas region, people were still dying. Um, that doesn't seem to, you know, no, that doesn't seem to have deterred the Russians from uh, pulling out of the Donbas, from uh, ending this conflict. And clearly, we were unable to deter uh, Putin from launching this war, which, by the way, most of the people around him didn't know that he was going to do. I mean, it's a very small circle of people who understood that there was actually going to 
be a full-scale invasion. Um, we tried to deter it. Uh, um, CIA Director Bill Burns went to Moscow uh, last November. He talked to his counterparts. He had a conversation uh, with Putin, and he said, we know what you guys are doing, um, but that obviously didn't deter them. I think the only lesson we've learned is that so far, all again, uh, Bill Burns meeting with um, his counterpart, Sergei Narishkin, recently uh, in Turkey, and then other conversations between people, well, Jake Sullivan, others in the White House, and uh, people in the Kremlin um, about what would happen if Russia were to use a tactical nuclear weapon. I mean, so far, that has toned down the rhetoric, although, again, Putin will drop the odd remark, as he did last week, making you uncertain whether they've really de-escalated that nuclear rhetoric. But that seems at the moment, at least to have, in most people believe, to have lessened the likelihood uh, that Putin would consider doing that. Uh, and so maybe that's worked. But otherwise, we have been unable uh, to deter Putin. Uh, and the only thing that's really deterring him from taking over all of Ukraine and then maybe setting his sights on other um, neighboring countries is the abysmal performance, really, of the Russian military and the fact that uh, they have failed uh, in their ability to take and hold on to territory in Ukraine. So they, it, that is they've deterred themselves so far by doing that. The concern is that Washington is trying to look as tough as it can without being as tough as it should. Um, we are worried about you know, the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Um, I think like any regime survival issue, um, that could come into play. Uh, autocrats don't really have to have a large consultative body, uh, as, you, uh, as, you, as you said. Um, and then there are specific actions that would seem to sort of play into uh, Russia's interest. For example, the exchange of Victor Boot for uh, Brittany Griner. Uh, at the end of the day, the United States said, well, the Russians dictated that it was you know, Griner or nothing and Boot or nothing. And yet we made the deal as opposed to walking away from it, given we left Paul Whelan behind, for example. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, others uh, as, as well, right? I don't think he, they were the only Americans that are in captivity in, in Russia. Um, I mean, uh, you know, and, and there were prisoners and others, right? I mean, this could have been negotiated with. Ultimately, are we sending still the wrong signals as we try, as we don't send F-16s over, we don't send ATACMs, right? Whether it's on the weapons side or even in our behavior. So I think that, you know, what we're doing is we are supplying enough weaponry to the Ukrainians to enable them to push back against the Russians to retake territory. Um, but we but, you know, so far, it looks as if we have told them that we don't want the weapons that we're supplying them to be used to attack inside Russia itself. Now, there have been attacks inside Russia. Uh, and so the question is, um, you know, exactly what weapons we use for that. But but all of that is you know, in, <laughs> clouded in some form of ambiguity. Um, I think that, you know, the prisoner swap has to be understood you know, as domestic politics in the United States, and the Russians understand that very well. Um, they understood that President Biden was under a lot of pressure um, from a lot of, you know, famous sports figures uh, to get this, to, to get Brittany Griner released. Um, and the Russians then, you know, insisted on uh, that the, they wanted Victor Boot. It's obviously not an equal exchange. He's a convicted arms dealer. Um, and then the Russians 
you know, were willing to talk about Paul Whelan, but only if the Germans were willing to trade a convicted assassin, a Russian who assassinated a Chechen dissident in broad daylight in Berlin. And the Germans, of course, said they were not willing to do that. And the U.S. can't tell the Germans what to do. So I think I think on this particular exchange and, you know, I've been watching the Russian media on that. They're gloating about this. Um, and and Victor Boot has immediately joined the, you know, the Liberal Democratic Party, so-called, which is of the four accepted parties in Russia, the most um, uh, right wing, nationalistic, whatever. Um, so he will become some kind of public figure there. Um, but I, 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 I don't think that the Biden administration really had any other choice, uh, again, because of all the, of the domestic pressure uh, to um, you know, engage in this deal. There are other Americans uh, in prison in Russia. Paul Whelan obviously is the one who that we know most about and the most egregious one since he was, he's clearly not a spy and they planted um, evidence on him, a flash drive on him. Um, and, you know, we, we hear that more negotiations are going on, but then the question is, what is it that the Russians want for him? And that's why actually some people uh, should be avoiding uh, going to Russia in, entirely uh, because you never know when your stay might be uh, involuntarily extended. Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to go to why Putin did what he did when he did it, um, right? I mean, what was the calendar and the timetable that was driving him? Sure. Um, b- because, you know, obviously the administration's critics uh, make the case that, well, you know, the chaotic withdrawal from Af- Afghanistan was the trigger, um, whereas you observed in your book, uh, for example, that actually it was American policies more broadly uh, over a long period of time uh, that have served as a, as encouragement uh, for Putin, even though your book came out uh, in early uh, 2019 and, and clearly was written in 2018. Um, you know, what what is your sense on why, you know, here we are now nine, nine months, 10 months into this about why he did what he did when he did it. When he did. So, uh, I mean, Putin, the, the goal of subjugating Ukraine and um, having a pro-Russian government in Ukraine and preventing Ukraine from joining the West, essentially. That's been Putin's goal for a very long time. We can go back to 2008 at the Bucharest-NATO summit when he told President uh, Bush, you know, George, uh, Ukraine isn't really a country. Half of it belonged to us and half of it belonged to Poland. Um, and so this is so the, the, the this goal has been there for a very long time. And it's part of a broader goal, which is really to relitigate the end of the Cold War. And Putin has essentially questioned whether the breakup of the Soviet Union was legitimate legitimate. And it's really to reverse that. So that is, and you can go back even to the 90s and talk to people who knew him when he was in St. Petersburg in the mayor's office, where he was discussing things like that. So so that's been on his mind for a very long time. Um, You know, he experienced the collapse of the Soviet Union very personally. He'd been a KGB agent in East Germany when the wall came down. He was out of a job. Um, You know, he had to come back uh, to a, a Soviet Union that was unfamiliar to him. He'd been away five years during the Gorbachev period. So all of this, it's personal about the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it's also it's also political. Now, why did he do it uh, in February? So I think there are a number of factors. Um, 
Zelensky, we have to remember, um, was very unpopular before the war began. I mean, he had a 25% popularity rating. His government was not doing well. Um, Putin had hoped in the beginning when Zelensky came in that he was going to be more pliable because he was elected on a platform of, you know, he wanted to end the war in the Donbass. Um, and the two of them had one meeting. It did not go well. Um, and so, Putin, uh, and, and then I think Putin was misinformed by his intelligence agents in Ukraine uh, that the Ukrainians, you know, would they wouldn't fight back, that Zelensky would leave. And so he thought that this was an opportune time uh, to move on Ukraine with a weak government and what he thought was a population, um, you know, would, that would be happy to have Russia to come in. Then, of course, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan was another reason for the timing. He looked at what happened uh, in that withdrawal and he thought the U.S. would be incapable of mounting any uh, strong response to what Russia did, that it was too, uh, you know, preoccupied by its own domestic problems and and the controversies surrounding the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, and then he looked at Europe. And at that point, you had a Britain reeling from Brexit with a weak government. Uh, you had France that was um, uh, going into presidential um, elections. Uh, you had Germany, which was trying to form a new coalition government and was distracted by that. So he looked at all of this. And then he thought, you know, the business elite in Europe um, is too vested in its relationship with Russia, in its business relationship, its energy relationships. And so they're never going to get together and really respond to this um, in, a, in a very robust way. So I think for all of those reasons, that's why the timing. And then, of course, he went to Beijing on the 4th of February, uh, just when at the beginning of the Olympic Games. And as far as we understand now, he was not explicit, of course, with Xi Jinping about what Russia was going to do. Um, but on the other hand, they, you know, they talked about the no limits partnership and I and the sense that he got there uh, that, you know, China would sort of have Russia's back, even though, again, uh, they, the Chinese weren't told exactly what was going to happen. So all of that. And then, of course, he agreed, um, at least tacitly, not to begin this until the Beijing Olympic Games were over. So I think that all accounts for the timing of this on February 24th. We have a tendency of looking at events that happen in Russia through very rose-tinted glasses that, uh, you know, there are a couple of thousand people who might uh, initially have gone to the streets. It, you know, Russians have a, over centuries of Tsarism and Soviet rule have a tendency of wanting to keep their heads down uh, ultimately and that things could get worse. And, uh, and the government indeed made life miserable for a lot of people who demonstrated sending a message to everybody else. If you don't want to lose your job, why don't you just shut up and keep doing what you're doing and you'll you'll continue getting paid? Is it likely that Putin gets ousted? And if so, how? And if Putin is ousted, who replaces him and somebody that could actually be worse than Putin? So what we know is that Putin has built up a system which is highly personalistic. Um, and during his 22 years uh, in the Kremlin, uh, with the break of four years when he was technically prime minister, but he was still running the country. Um, during all of that time, institutions in Russia have really withered. So this is a highly personalistic system. He comes from the KGB. He is surrounded by people who come from the intelligence services. And he has created his own National Guard, uh, which is you know loyal to him and supposed to protect him both from street from the street and also from from a coup. So if you look at Russian history, how have leaders been replaced? So it's either death by natural or unnatural causes. 
um, or it is, um, uh, you know, palace coups, which there have been both in the Tsarist and in the Soviet uh, time, or, and we, you had this one, and the only um, incidents really are in Russian history where you had the peaceful transfer of power from Yeltsin to Putin. And we right. have to remember that Yeltsin chose Putin because he wanted someone who would not uh, go after his family, that his family would not be prosecuted for whatever um, uh, things they had done uh, in terms of their, their financial situation. So that, that's the pattern. Now, um, you know, for instance, Nikita Khrushchev was removed by the people in the Politburo and the Central Committee of the Communist Party. There were rules, there were institutions. They got together and they voted him out and they came to him and said, Mr. You know, General Secretary, we've, we've voted you out. Um, it's very hard to see that happening today in Russia. So what are, what are the possibilities? Um, you know, he does have this Praetorian Guard. You know, if one of them decided that, you know, it was time to get rid of him, I guess they could. But, uh, you know, assassination is probably not a very likely um, occurrence, uh, you know, given the, given the way that the system is structured. Um, and, um, you know, would it could a group of people get together and persuade him to leave? It's rather hard to imagine that too. Might he at some point decide that things are going so badly? Uh, you know, we hear rumors that they're, you know, preparing a possibility that he would go and live in Venezuela with his family. I mean, there are all of these rumors. So, so we, it's very hard to envisage how he leaves voluntarily, um, and and equally hard to envisage how he leaves involuntarily. But of course, we can also be surprised uh, as we have been before. Um, who would replace him? It's obviously not going to be uh, someone like Alexei Navalny or Vladimir Karamurz and people who are Democrats. Um, it could be someone more hawkish than him. Yevgeny Prigozhin, the man who owns Wagner, the um, mercenary group, and also owns the agency that's responsible for disinformation, including in our own elections. He has been coming out very much publicly criticizing the army for not being nearly tough enough on what's happening. Um, and uh, he has a much higher profile now than he used to be. If someone like that were to replace Putin, you know, things could get even worse. Um, initially, I think he would be replaced by people who share his views. But some of those people might understand that it's in Russia's interest to wind down this war because it's had such a negative effect on Russia, both domestically, but also in terms of its global standing. I think the best scenario, and I don't think we're there yet, would be for a group of the more pragmatic technocrats um, who are there uh, in the echelons of the elite, like the prime minister, Mishustin, other people like that, um, who might come to power eventually and say, it's not in our interest to have such an antagonistic relationship with the West for economic and other reasons. We want to be a modern country that's globally engaged. Um, but those people wouldn't necessarily be Democrats, but it might Russia might be easier to live with if a group like that were to come to power. The Russian people have shown that they will come out on the streets, right? I mean, obviously, that's the reason we ended up with the Soviet Union, uh, is that there were mass demonstrations and the whole thing became unhinged. Um, you know, Putin has been concerned somewhat uh, about um, military mobilization. There's a sense that an even bigger mobilization will be necessary if Russia is to retake this territory. Uh, a number two million has been mentioned by uh, some analysts uh, about what it is that would be needed. Um, 
I mean, what is it that would get the Russian people mobilized, if if anything? Um, because Russia has created an entirely parallel economy. It is a very wealthy nation with abundant resources. Uh, the McDonald's changed their names, um, but you know they're still serving up hamburgers. Um, the car plants have changed, but they're still producing cars. Uh, you can't get as much luxury goods, but rich, rich Russians still can, and rich Russians are still traveling uh, to take vacations in Cyprus. What is it that would, and elsewhere, um, even in Washington, uh, you go to Lafayette Park, you will see Russians uh, getting pictures taken in front of the White House. Um, what is it that it would take to get Russians mobilized, or is that sort of a an unlikely outcome, and Russians will just sort of bite down and bear it, even if it means dying in large numbers in Ukraine? So, I mean, Putin has been very shrewd in one way, which is that he's kept the borders open. I mean, ever since the war began, you know, Russians that I know were fearful that he would then close the borders like the Soviet Union did and they wouldn't be able to leave. The, a few hundred thousand left immediately. And the, a lot of those are the young tech savvy, you know, opponents of the war who are, who are either living in Armenia or Georgia or Kazakhstan even, or they're living in the Baltic states, or they're living in Europe. Uh, and then many more left when he did the partial mobilization of a couple of months ago. Um, and many of these people fled again to neighboring countries. Um, so as long as people can leave, um, if they, you know, if they don't want to fight, they they just leave. Now, you've had some protests in the country um, by the relatives, the, you know, the soldiers, mothers, the relatives of people who have gone and come back in body bags. But so far, they have been, you know, isolated and they and they haven't been like they were during the Soviet Afghan war, which is one of the things that, you know, brought the whole thing down. Um, you're, you're right about the economy in a sense. But what you do see happening now is because of the lack of spare parts, the Russians have actually had to close down some of these automobile manufacturing lines. They're still manufacturing some of them, but they don't have access to what they need. If if next year you were to see a significant closing of, of enterprises and greater unemployment and the inability to pay these people, you could get more domestic unrest. But largely the people who live in the provinces uh, and don't have access to real information, you know, they only have access to Russian state-run media, where their view of the war is very different from ours. They're either apathetic or they accept that the West is threatening Russia and that all this, right. you know, that they're suffering because of that. So I think it's very hard to see a, a popular uprising, you know, similar to what you had in 1917 or even what happened in 1991 um, after the coup. It's very attempted coup. It's very hard to see that happening as long as the borders are open. I, I think it's going to be very interesting to watch, right? Because as you said, factories are uh, going to grind down. Um, there is going to be an impact, for example, on commercial aviation componentry and parts and the like. So it becomes harder to operate airplanes, even though the Russians make their own airplanes, they're dependent on global supply chains. So this is where sort of globalization can become uh, kind of a valuable uh, weapon. Um, I'm, I'm reminded as you were as you were talking and, you know, you mentioned uh, the Cold War, you know, whenever anybody talks about Putin's popularity at 80 percent, I like to remind people, uh, given that we had family in the Soviet Union, 
Leonid Brezhnev was very, very popular and, and Soviets, <laughs> the Soviet people hated him as well. Uh, right. So it's, it's, you know, I, I find it fascinating that, you know, we say with great confidence, you know, Russians are 80% behind Putin. I think Russians are smart enough to say, oh yeah, Putin, great job. Uh, good man. Uh, name my kid Vladimir. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let me just add, I mean, the Levada polling organization, which is the last independent polling organization came out with a poll last week. Uh, and again, you know, of course you have to take some of this with a grain of salt where around 50% of the Russian population say that they definitely support the war. Another 30% say they sort of support the war, but 50% also say that negotiations should begin now. So that does show you that public opinion in Russia maybe is questioning more what's happening there. Uh, well, I, I certainly hope so. And I hope that it's an accurate reflection. But I'm always skeptical uh, about polling data from authoritarian regimes with, with people who are used to living uh, in, in, uh, within, within those lines. Um, let me take you to the question uh, of sort of the broader campaign uh, that uh, Washington has been exercising to bring the world together to sanction Russia. Uh, certainly our European and some of our Asian allies uh, have done that in unprecedented fashion. On the other hand, um, you know, the president is hosting African nations here in Washington, uh, massive traffic, traffic, uh, traffic disruptions uh, as well uh, as we uh, go through that process. Uh, the African nations are saying we don't want to make a choice, by the way, for and the administration has been making this case against uh, in, in terms of the need to stand up to Russia in Ukraine in making the case why China should not be allowed uh, to transgress in Taiwan. Uh, clearly, it's messaging. And yet, India continues to do uh, trade uh, with Russia. China continues to do trade with China. Uh, Turkey, a NATO partner uh, and ally, continues to do trade. Indeed, it's Turkish uh, and Middle Eastern and Chinese uh, investment that's replacing uh, Western departures of money. And African leaders have said, we don't want to make a choice. Dr. Stent, how realistic is the administration's policy to sort of exert uniform economic pressure and ultimately, are there other sources of technology of markets that actually allow authoritarian nations not to choose and not to be subject to Western pressure? So I think even though the administration, of course, is trying to get the rest of the world uh, behind, uh, you know, to support sanctions against Russia, it's not going to happen. I mean, if you so, you know, you have the collective West, you have the richest countries of the world, the United States, Europe, the Asian allies, Australia, etc., have imposed these sanctions um, on Russia. But if you look at the population of the countries in the world um, that are not willing to impose sanctions on Russia or condemn it, including China and India, the BRICS countries, uh, much of Latin America, the Middle East, Africa, it's it's a it's a larger number of people. And for these countries, they see this as a European problem, a localized conflict that is not their conflict. And I think we shouldn't forget that a large number of these countries, particularly in Africa, but in other countries, they still view Russia as the heir to the Soviet Union. And in their minds, this is the country that supported their national liberation movements. And they've been very explicit about that, even though obviously post-Soviet um, Russia is very is very different. Um, and in the end, none of these countries 
see Russia as an imperial or colonial power, what you and I talked about at the beginning, uh, which is also very interesting because from a Western point of view, Russia is behaving like an imperial power. So for all, and a large number of these countries, and I think we have to face up to it, are, um, you know, uh, they look upon the United States uh, with suspicion. Um, and they say it's hypocrisy. They start talking about Vietnam and Iraq and, you know, name your your war and saying, why should we condemn Russia when the U.S. has done it too? So I think we have to understand um, that it's going to be very difficult to get any of those countries to go along with sanctions, however much we try and persuade them. India now has become Russia's largest purchaser of oil, even though Prime Minister Modi canceled his annual in-person meeting with Putin. Uh, this just happened last week because of the ongoing war. And he has criticized the war, but still, st he's still trading with Russia. And, you know, Russia, of course, doesn't have access to um, semiconductors, a large number of components from the West. But the Chinese have, you know, they're very careful, but they have been supplying uh, the Russians with some components. On the other hand, they don't want to violate Western sanctions and then become subject to secondary sanctions themselves. So I think, you know, Russia certainly will emerge from this war uh, a poorer country, a more deglobalized country, uh, but it's not going to be completely cut off from some of the things it needs because other countries are willing to supply them. I want to take uh, to lessons from Russia uh, that are applicable to deterring China. You know, as 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 you said, right? This was a failure of deterrence. This is a bust that we saw coming. We saw it coming in 2014, and indeed, we've we've whistled. You know, go back to Valdai. Vladimir Putin made very clear in 2005 his view of the West and what he was going to do, and pretty much everything in that speech he has been doing. Um, right? I mean, so none of this uh, should be a surprise. Just as we should be paying attention to what the Chinese have been telling us over the course of the last three decades. Strangely, they're doing what it is that they said they do, and they've apparently set their minds that they're going to take Taiwan, whether by force or 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 not. Uh, there are many in the Pentagon that did not want the administration to respond uh, because it wanted whatever money is to be directed to China and that the fight was about China. And yet the administration made the case that if we allow Russia to succeed in Ukraine, it will be impossible for us to draw a line on, on Taiwan. From your standpoint, what are the most important lessons from this crisis that are applicable to better prepare us for uh, China and better deter China? Well, I think one thing is just from, from what the Chinese have seen uh, in terms of the sanctions against Russia, um, uh, after all, you know, China has a much greater stake in, in economic relations, um, uh, you know, with the U.S., with the Europeans. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, that that might act as a deterrent. Um, and then I think, I mean, interestingly enough, the other thing that should act as a deterrent to the Chinese is just watching the course of the war, uh, watching what happens when um, a smaller, weaker country is invaded and yet the will to fight, the morale, the will to fight is there and um, it's supplied with Western weapons. Uh, so that that should make them uh, at least <laughs> pause to think, you know, what's the condition of their own armed forces? You know, what, what might happen um, with Taiwan? And then I think, um, you know, the ambiguity surrounding exactly what it is um, that the United States might do under a scenario like that, I suppose is, uh, is supposed to act also as a deterrent. Um, although, um, I mean, and I think that's 
that's different from the Russian case uh, because we didn't, you know, we didn't have any contractual uh, agreements, uh, no treaties uh, with Ukraine uh, in the way that we have with Taiwan. Uh, is that enough to deter China? I don't know. I'm not a China expert, but those are just some of the reflections. Um, but I mean, we did have an agreement, didn't we, with Ukraine, uh, the Bucharest Accord, where um, uh, the United States uh, was among the guarantors, along with the United Kingdom, of Ukrainian security in exchange for giving up its nuclear weapons, ultimately, right? I mean, so we we did have an agreement. Well, but that's, if you look at that agreement, that was deliberately done from the American side. It's not actually a treaty. It was giving them assurances, not guarantees, um, precisely because the U.S. did not want to be in a situation where if Russia... Um, you know, or if, you know, or if somebody attacked Ukraine, it would actually have to come to Ukraine's defense. So it's it's a, I mean, it's it's a different kind of. It was a weaker. The Budapest Memorandum, I, I believe, is a weaker, uh, um, you know, guarantee than what the U.S. and Taiwan have. Right. Uh, although it's it's inter- right, it does undermine sort of the sense of America's word, though. Right, and of perfidious Albion and the, and the like, as, as some have observed. It does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly. Yeah. Um, and by the way, the Russians are now using weapons against Ukraine. These were weapons that the Ukrainians gave up uh, right. in 1994, which is a very bitter irony. Uh, it is. It is very bitter indeed. And in the interests of great powers uh, against uh, the needs of the small. Um, let, let me uh, briefly, we're getting into lightning round and I want to uh, cover uh, just a couple of more uh, questions. Uh, and first is the notion of Russia as an imperial power. We discussed that as it's a foundational uh, centerpiece of the Russian mind. Uh, and yet it appears that there is a breakdown in Russia's influence, uh, whether in the Caucasus, uh, where Turkey and Israel were able to get involved on Azerbaijan's behalf in the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, crisis, concerns that there could be a further part- a partition of Armenia proper uh, itself. Uh, we've seen it in, you know, sort of Kazakhs standing up, even though this current uh, regime and administration, uh, you know, benefited from Putin's involvement. Uh, you know, is is the empire frame? Uh, as as China becomes sort of more assertive and and starts investing more and uh, you know what, is the empire fraying? Certainly, and what does it mean? Yeah, if it does? The, well, the impact of the Russia Ukraine war has certainly been to lessen Russia's ability to sort of influence and get the outcome at once in its neighborhood. Um, it's very interesting. There was, a, you know, in uh, in Yerevan, there was recently a, a summit of the Collective Security Treaty Organization. Prime Minister Pashinyan refused to sign um, uh, the agreement because uh, he feels that Russia, um, you know, d- you know, re- reneged on its promises uh, to Armenia, has not been supporting Armenia in the conflict with Azerbaijan. Uh, you have the Kazakh president, Takayev, who has very explicitly said he's not going to recognize uh, the annexation that Russia announced of the various territories. None of these countries have been willing to send any of their uh, people to fight uh, in Ukraine, even though Putin has demanded it. Um, and and you you know you've you've seen it in various multilateral fora. Um, the you know the way that Russia or Putin losing his ability really to dictate the terms of the relationship and 
Turkey, of course, as you say, has become much more active, um, you know, since the since the recent and then a couple of years ago uh, war uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Other uh, other um, actors are coming in. The Iranians uh, are becoming more active in the South Caucasus. China, um, which was already a major player in Central Asia, is now, I would say, becoming even more active. Uh, uh, Xi Jinping visited Kazakhstan um, uh, uh, quite recently. And, you know, those ties are, are firming up now. China has military uh, ties with Tajikistan and other countries. So I think the ultimate result of this war will be a loosening, uh, both, I think, of these multilateral organizations uh, that cover the post-Soviet space, but also in the bilateral relationships. I mean, the only one that is tighter now is Belarus, because Belarus is, Lukashenko is entirely dependent on Russia to stay in power. Um, but with all of these other neighbors, they, you know, they're rethinking their relationship with Russia. It really is interesting how, you know, in the long sweep of history, when uh, historians come and look at this moment, the Angela Stent of 2020, uh, of 24-24, we'll look at this and go, wow, was this a historic screw-up uh, on, on Vladimir Putin's part? Uh, and, and it will certainly be interesting. But then again, autocrats uh, are not particularly self-reflective. Um, how, how, this is a very hard question, but how does this crisis end? And what does a thoughtful long-term strategy toward Russia have to be? Because we've had this tendency, we can bend uh, Russia, we can break Russia. Uh, that's as nonsensical as saying we could break China. Uh, that's not going to happen. And, and what does this smart strategy need to look like if we're also going to be messaging uh, China? So, I mean, nobody knows clearly how this will end. I think the war will continue certainly um, into 2023. What are the possible outcomes? I mean, one of them, I mean, assuming that a, a real peace is impossible as long as Putin or people like Putin are in power in the Kremlin and they and they don't believe Ukraine is an independent state. You could have a Korean scenario where you have, uh, you know, a dividing line, an armistice, but it's not really a peace and there's no peace settlement uh, and it's enforced it would really have to be enforced by very robust NATO support for Ukraine. Uh, I mean, Ukraine wants security guarantees that are akin to Article 5. Um, that might not quite be possible because the, the problem with Article 5 is that then if Russia were to invade again, um, uh, you know, the US or whoever the guarantee guarantor was would get involved in a direct conflict with Russia. Um, but at least there could be um, robust security guarantees. There could be, uh, you know, permanent um, military assistance to Ukraine. In other words, uh, enforcing um, an armistice like that and a ceasefire. Um, which is, which is, I think, you know, which is one possible outcome. It's very hard, as I say, I can't imagine in the near future having a real peace agreement. And we have to remember that Russia has broken every agreement that it's signed with Ukraine right. since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, so that that would probably not be a, a bad outcome. Another outcome would be that this war of attrition continues for a long time. Uh, and uh, but do you think that ultimately Ukraine becomes, a, for example, an EU member uh, and a closer NATO partner? I mean, effectively a NATO partner in all but yeah. name. 
I mean, the best outcome is a sovereign, territorially intact Ukraine. We're not quite sure what the borders would be. And that eventually, if it does the right things domestically and it has to clean up its own house, it does join the European Union and has a very close relationship with NATO. Maybe one day it will join NATO. But that, I think, isn't going to happen anytime soon. Is there any circumstance in which this conflict does go nuclear? I know that this takes up and it rightfully should take up bandwidth. Um but every once in a while, I have a tendency of thinking that it is more a saber that gets rattled. Uh, but at some point, do you conceive any scenario under which uh, Putin would consider doing that? Whether for Because, I mean, even on regime survival, it doesn't look like it would help him uh, in that case either, uh, necessarily. I mean, people say that if the, if the Ukrainians try and take back Crimea or take back Crimea, that would lead to the use of a nuclear weapon. Um, I'm not sure about that. I think the use of a tactical nuclear weapon wouldn't really get Putin what he wants. And it would be breaking a 77-year-old taboo. And I think you know his, his partners now, the Chinese, the Indians, have been very explicit that, they, that this is an absolute uh, no-go. Um, you can't rule it out completely, uh, but I think I wouldn't play it up too much. Dr. Stent, thank you so very much for being so generous with your time. Terrific conversation and very much enjoyed having you on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you, too. Thank you.